Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour, which for the first time in too long, a very long time, is streamed from the Navarra Media Studio. Yes, I have escaped my bedroom. And the cycle across London today for me was very much worth it because we have a mega show lined up for you tonight. We're talking about the culture war, or more specifically, um, the fact that the Tories' cynical attempt to stoke one has now blown up in their faces because of the bravery of the England football team. It's been, I have to say, a bit of a joy to watch. There have obviously been a lot of a lot of worrying news over the past few days, but this particular aspect of it, it's amazing. Dahlia, are, are you enjoying seeing the, the England football team just run rings around Boris Johnson and Priti Patel? First of all, I've missed you so much, looking crisp, looking wonderful, <laughs> looking well rested. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an absolute joy to watch. It's really great seeing like this generation of black football players just not taking any shit. A lesson for us all. Amazing. First story. When England players decided to take the knee at Euro 2020, the government's initial response was to dismiss the action as gesture politics and to refuse to condemn those booing people taking the knee. Now, their feigned concern when their feigned concern when England footballers suffered a torrent of racial abuse after the final, therefore, wasn't taken very well by many in the country. As we spoke about on Monday, charges of hypocrisy came from the likes of Gary Neville and numerous Labour MPs. Since then, England players themselves have got involved. To explain the context, this is the tweet from Priti Patel, which she sent on Monday. I am disgusted that England players who have given so much for our country this summer have been subject to vile racist abuse on social media. It has no place in our country, and I back the police to hold those responsible to account. Now, that tweet from Priti Patel was then quote tweeted by England footballer Tyrone Mings. He said, you don't get to stoke the fire at the beginning of the tournament by labelling our anti-racism message as gesture politics and then pretend to be disgusted when the very thing we're campaigning against happens. This particular issue was unsurprisingly one that made the Conservatives a little bit vulnerable and therefore one that the Labour Party wanted to take advantage of. Um, it was brought up by Keir Starmer today at Prime Minister's Questions. Mr Speaker, let me be clear. I totally condemn all racism, including that directed at the Home Secretary. But she's got this wrong. The whole country knows it. His own MPs know it. In the last few days, everybody has seen England's black players have been the targets of disgusting racist abuse following Sunday's match. Disgusting. And this is really simple, Mr Speaker. Either the Prime Minister is with the England players in their stand against racism, or he can defend his own record, those of his ministers and some of his MPs. But he can't have it both ways. So can he tell the House, does he now regret failing to condemn those who booed England players for standing up to racism, yes or no? Yes. Mr Speaker, we made it absolutely clear that no one should boo the England team. And, uh, abs and Mr Speaker, uh, what we're doing now is taking, following the, following the racist abuse that our players sadly suffered on Sunday night and, and thereafter, we're taking practical action. So in addition to changing the football uh, banning order regime, uh, last night I met representatives of Facebook, of Twitter, of TikTok, of Snapchat, uh, of Instagram, and I made it absolutely uh, clear to them that we will legislate to address this problem, Mr Speaker, in the online harms bill, and unless they get, unless they get hate 
and racism off their platforms, they will face fines amounting to 10% of their global revenues. And we all know, Mr. Speaker, that they have the technology to do it. Now, we'll talk about the social media aspect of this all in a bit more detail later in the show. But now I want to focus on that claim from Boris Johnson. He said, we made it absolutely clear that no one should boo the England team. Now, we are used to Boris Johnson making false claims in the Commons, but that doesn't mean it should shock us any less when he does lie in such an outrageous fashion. Now, to remind you of the government's stance on taking the knee at the start of the Euros and their stance on people booing people taking the knee, this was Priti Patel speaking to GB News on the 14th of June. I just don't support, you know, people participating in, you know, that type of gesture, gesture politics to a certain extent as well. It's all well to support a cause and, you know, make your voices heard. But actually, quite frankly, and we saw last year in particular with some of the, the protests that took place, I speak now very much from what I saw in the impact on policing. It was devastating. And not only that, I just don't subscribe to this view that we should be rewriting our history, um, you know, pulling down statues, the famous Coulson statue and what's happened there. Toppling statues is not the answer. It's about learning from our past, learning from our history and actually working together Do you to, think to the, drive the right outcomes. So the England fans are right to boo? Well, that's a choice for them, quite frankly. Would you Would you be booed well, if you understand? I, 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 I've not gone to a football match to even sort of, you know, contemplate that. But I, I maintain my point, quite frankly, that we learn from our past. We don't try and rewrite it. Now, to remind you, today in Parliament, Boris Johnson said, we made it absolutely clear that no one should boo the England team. And Priti Patel in that clip said, I just don't support people taking part in that kind of gesture politics. And most importantly, when she was asked, do you think England fans are right to boo? She says, that's a choice for them. Worse than that, she was asked, would you boo the England fans? You know, this isn't even a question of do people have a right to boo? Would you boo personally, Pretty Patel? She says, oh, huh, I haven't been to a football match in a while, so I wouldn't know. I don't have to make that decision. So that is the precise opposite of what Boris Johnson said. He said, we made it clear we are opposed to people booing. That's his home secretary saying she might boo herself. You know, it's, it's phenomenal. Now, the other interesting part of that interview, which we'll have heard a lot about over the past few days from right-wing pundits who are trying to defend the booers is to associate taking a knee with Black Lives Matter, to associate it with pulling down statues, as Priti Patel was doing there. By the way, I'm not sure why she was at the famous Colston statue. No one had heard of the Colston statue before it got brought down. In any case, this issue of the association between taking the knee and Black Lives Matter, I want to bring up a couple of tweets which I thought were very instructive when it comes to this. The first is from Jason Okandaya, who we've had on the show before. He tweeted, absolutely zero interest in getting into the is BLM Marxist brain aneurysm, but taking the knee is not owned by BLM in the way people view BLM as an organization. It's an anti-racist symbol that became popularized in sport by Colin Kaepernick in 2016. Um, another tweet which gives some really important context here is from Toby Moses, who's from The Guardian. Um, and he wrote, Colin Kaepernick went out of his way to find the most acceptable form of anti-racism statement he could, getting advice from a Green Beret, so that's an American veteran, as he didn't want to offend anyone. It didn't matter. People don't have a problem with taking the knee. They have a problem with anti-racism. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this question, and particularly, I suppose, from the Tories' perspective, do you think they have really bitten off more than they can chew by trying to stoke, I suppose, a cheap culture war and finding themselves at odds with 11 of the most popular people in the country, the England football team? 12, actually, let's add Gareth Southgate. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the problem is that 
the Tories sort of didn't realise they were biting anything off. They've basically, they're, they're so used to being given, especially in this arena, being given a sort of carte blanche to act with very little accountability by both the media and also the opposition in this country, quite frankly, that all it took was just, you know, a little bit of persevered resistance and boldness um, for the government to have to sort of eat their words and to be caught out in the fact that they are trying to sort of stoke these culture wars, as you say, as a way of, you know, mobilizing their base, of smearing their ideological opponents, and then sort of ducking out of responsibility when, you know, the seeds that they've planted kind of come to fruition, as we have seen over the over the weekend. Um, and, you know, we saw that with Rashford taking on the government's cancellation of free school meals. You know, he didn't win that because he had this like elaborate infrastructure of focus groups or like necessarily really powerful connections in the media. He won it because he showed clarity and perseverance in his opposition. And that's not something that we see mobilized against this government very often. Um, you know, and this just shows me that this government actually doesn't really hold up that well um, to that kind of bold and clear opposition. And so the problem is really that they haven't experienced much of it before. And so they they don't really, it, it's so interesting to see how easily they've kind of folded or sort of been exposed in this whole um, scenario. But I think it's really interesting um, and inspiring to see this kind of boldness and political literacy, particularly amongst sort of the younger generation of black and brown footballers on the England team. And I think, you know, I understand what Jason's saying about not wanting to kind of get into the BLM stuff. But I think, you know, I don't think that we necessarily do ourselves a favor when we try and act like this isn't inspired by, you know, the mobilizations that BLM did um, as a broad coalition surrounding, you know, economic justice, climate justice, etc. So I think, you know, we kind of shouldn't really dismiss that connection completely. Um, but one thing we do know is that they are not, they are really not accepting the kind of mealy-mouthed aesthetic only multiculturalism of generations past. The England football team is one example of this. The Kill the Bill organisers, which were largely sort of younger generation, Gen Z, black and brown people is another example of this. And we're seeing this generation just refuse to settle for just mere inclusion, but are actually entering these institutions with an eye to transform them. So, you know, in many ways, uh, the black and brown sort of footballers on the England team could have allowed this tournament and could have allowed themselves to be used as a kind of giant pat on the back of, you know, oh, isn't England so unproblematically multiracial um, or allow themselves to be used as a cover for the kind of systemic racism that still pervades this country. I'm sure that would have come with a lot of benefits, um, but they actively chose not to do that and actually to make a stand. And it's hilarious to see how quickly the government have been caught out as a result of that. And it's really, really exciting to see as well. Yeah, we're going to talk in, in one moment about how, I suppose, one attempt for the government to use this, this, this successful run in the Euros to give themselves a pat on the back seems to have fallen through. I do want to, I suppose, quickly clarify. I, I do think you're right. We shouldn't underplay the connection between the BLM movement and you know the success of 
um, people talking about anti-racism now, people taking the knee, that is because of the successful organising of people in the Black Lives Matter movement. I think there is a difference, though, between saying that means the Black Lives Matter movement has ownership over this symbol. And I think this is the case for all movements, really. So often when it came to I Extinction Rebellion, if I'd go on, on, on the radio at this point, I used to do a lot of right-wing radio, they were obsessed with looking at all of their different demands. But my point was always, look, this is kind of besides the point. I really respect Extinction Rebellion because what they've done is they've put climate change onto the top of the political agenda by me thinking they've done a great thing and wanting to get involved in climate change activism or whatever. That doesn't mean I endorse all of their principles. And I don't think they'd want people to think that either. You know, sometimes you do get activists who say, oh, I'm so annoyed that um, people are getting involved in BLM who aren't anti-capitalist or people who are getting involved in Extinction Rebellion who are um, pro-technological solutions. But they're a minority. The idea is you start a movement, you spark people's interest in an issue, and then you, a successful movement actually, you know, abdicates ownership of that issue and you, you let people interpret it in their own ways. And I, I do think that is exactly what is going on here. Let's go to our next story. Politicians like to associate themselves with success and they like to try and share in the goodwill the public feel towards celebrities. It's why Tony Blair invited Noel Gallagher to Downing Street and why David Cameron posed with Mo Farah after the 2012 Olympics. It was no surprise then when the iPaper reported that Downing Street were planning a reception for the England football team, the first to reach a final since 1966. So the I story, this was on Monday, they wrote, England's Euro 2020 team are set to be toasted at a reception with the country's leaders to celebrate their first tournament in 55 years, the I understands. There are plans in Whitehall to host Gareth Southgate and his squad for a reception at either Downing Street or a royal venue. But there will be no bus tour for Harry Kane and the team after their defeat on penalties to Italy because COVID rules, which would make it difficult, do not lift until July the 19th when players are likely to be on holiday. So they're saying that there'll, there'll be a reception in Downing Street. What you might expect is them going around on, on buses. I know there are lots of people who would like to show their appreciation for the team in, in the street. That's not going to happen. Well, that was never going to happen, sorry, because of COVID rules. But we did expect there to be a reception in Downing Street. Now, that story dropped on Monday at 7 p.m. 40 minutes later, England defender Tyrone Ming tweeted at Priti Patel, accusing her of stoking the fire of racism. And that led many to speculate whether that planned event might be off. Of course, those moments where you have a, a politician posing with footballers or singers or actors, they're supposed to be a simple feel-good story. I'm the prime minister and I'm associating with the, the people who you relate to. It wouldn't have been particularly good for Boris Johnson if that ended up being a moment in front of live TV cameras where some of the most respected people in the country were telling him, mate, to be fair, you were pushing racism. You know, you, you've been responsible for racist comments in the past. And when we needed your support, when we were taking anti-racist action, you abandoned us. That wouldn't have looked pretty, that wouldn't have looked very good at all on the BBC. Neither would it have looked very good if the players refused to turn up after receiving an invite. Anyway, lo and behold, the following day, Aubrey Allegretti from The Guardian tweeted, I'm told that plans to have the England team to Downing Street for a reception this week have been shelved with attention turning instead to the PM's levelling up speech in a few days. That's right. The event was off. Um, it didn't stay in their diary for very long at all. Now, this, of course, led to lots of speculation. Was it the government avoiding potential embarrassment? Was it that the invite did go out to the England team and enough members of that team said no, that they thought this was not going to be viable 
both plausible to me. A Downing Street spokesperson has denied it was either. Um, so they said... The PM would have been delighted and honoured to host a reception for the England squad to mark their outstanding performance in the European Championship. However, Number 10 was informed prior to Sunday's game that the FA's preference was not for an immediate reception in the event England were to lose. We continue to discuss suitable ways for the PM to thank the squad and coaching staff for their heroic efforts through the tournament. Worth noting that story was in the eye on Monday, so there was clearly some mix-up somewhere all the spokesperson isn't telling us the whole truth. Dahlia, who do you believe here? What do you think has happened behind the scenes between Monday when it was being briefed that there was going to be a meeting in Downing Street between Boris Johnson and England's footballers and Tuesday when that meeting, that reception was off? Sure, Downing Street spokesperson. I'm sure that's exactly <laughs> what went down. I mean, it's clear that one of two things happened. Either, you know, the players refused you know, because of their sustained criticism of the government from their policy on free school meals, you know, although I guess that is one one particular football footballer, but you know, also down to the fact that they didn't back the footballers when they when when they really needed the head of state to say, hey, stop booing and abusing our players. Um, and in fact, actually seem to kind of encourage um people to see it as whatever gesture politics means. I'm sure that, you know, if Priti Patel's concerned with just the gesture of anti-racism. I'm not sure how she's going to feel about the actual actions um, of anti-racism. But so either the players refused to or they said, OK, we'll come, but don't think that we're just going to stand there and smile. Um, and I think that, you know, from what we know of Gareth Southgate, you know, the fact that he did come to the defence of his players and he did say, you know, I might connect to this kind of English patriotism or, you know, this particular kind of, you know, representation of England, but my players don't, and I back my players, um, that I wouldn't be surprised if he said, you know, if this is not what my players need right now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to make them do that. And frankly, if I was in any of those footballers positions right now, especially the, the footballers of colour, the last thing I'd want to see after the devastating um, loss on Sunday is, you know, Boris Johnson's face. It was absolutely right, I think. And it was so meaningful that if we are going on speculation that, that there was some kind of tension there that is the reason why this was put off and it's not what the Downing Street spokesperson has said it was, which is just sort of a calendar issue or a protocol issue. The players have been very particularly, Tyrone Mings, has been absolutely clear that, you know, the government's attempt to distance themselves from previous stoking of racial hatred, not, not just in the particular case of taking the knee, not just in this particular, you know, trying to create this kind of massive division over what should be something that we unify around, which is taking the knee, but, you know, a generalized capitalizing on racialized fear, which has come to define not just this government, but the people within this government outside of that particular uh, roles within this, within the, the current government, whether it's, you know, Boris Johnson's involvement in the vote leave campaign and the particular racialized, you know, formations that underpin that, the police and sentencing bill, which we know will disproportionately impact working class people of colour. The government's legitimacy has been built, you know, partly through culture wars, 
through the grounding of fears of, you know, propertied, you know, largely white people feeling fear and disgust towards racialized people, towards precarious people, towards migrants. And that includes the stoking of racism, actually. You know, it is largely propertied white voters, but it's also the stoking of racialized um, of racism within vain communities. And we saw that, for example, in the stoking up of Islamophobia amongst Hindu communities through those kind of classic divide and rule tactics. And so in that context, it's unacceptable for the government to then use this team and use, you know, the intense and heightened emotions that we all have around this game to attach itself to the widespread condemnation of what is essentially the fruit of their labor. And by what I mean is the government's labor of, you know, dividing and stoking up racial tension through the culture war prism. Um, if you're enjoying tonight's show and you usually enjoy our shows, do consider becoming a financial supporter. That's what makes this organization and this show possible. If you are already one, thank you so much. If not, please go to navaramedia.com slash support. The abuse levelled at Sancho, Saka and Rashford after the Euro 2020 final has brought renewed pressure on social media companies to sort out the racism epidemic on their platforms. And as part of that push, one specific demand is gaining momentum. That's to require social media companies such as Instagram, Facebook or Twitter to make presenting your ID a precondition for opening an account. Over 670,000 people have now signed a petition to that effect. So specifically, the petition calls for the government to make it a legal requirement when opening a new social media account to provide a verified form of ID where the account belongs to a person under the age of 18, verify the account with the ID of a parent guardian to prevent anonymized harmful activity, providing traceability if an offense occurs. As you can see, that's now been signed by 676,000 people. Now, the petition was actually started earlier this year. It was done so by the model Katie Price. It's got a bunch more, hundreds of thousands more signatories in the wake of the Euro 2020 final. That's including because Katie Price herself shared it. Um, So to her 2.6 million followers, she said on Monday, the vile racist abuse England players are now facing proves why this petition is more important than ever. This is an absolute minefield. And I think that this idea of a sort of one stop solution is, is really misguided. You know, as someone, you know, I have received my, my fair share of online abuse. You know, I have great understanding, great empathy for what it's like to receive this kind of abuse, to be exposed on a scale that you just would never have been exposed on before the internet. You are sort of hyper visible uh, in a way, particularly as a woman of color, in a way that, you know, People can just say the most obscene things to you, but also not just say them, but actually, you know, do things online that really are harmful in terms of your reputation, your safety, and without any accountability. It makes the internet a very scary place to be. Um, But creating ID requirements to participate in social media is a really, it's a really dangerous game. Firstly, it hands over a huge amount of power to, you know, a small number of companies that own these, you know, what are basically now essential telecommunications infrastructures um, that, you know, structure our entire world. It hands over a huge amount of, you know, very, very rich data to those companies. You know, handing over that depth of data will empower those companies even beyond anything that we could imagine and empower the scale and the depth of governance that they have 
um, over our lives, and particularly the the linking of of real identities, you know, offline identities and online identities. Um, means that, you know, the scale of and the depth of data tracking and surveillance is likely to be much more endemic. It's likely to affect us a lot more. Um, It makes that kind of data tracking much harder to resist. And it also means that a lot of people who might be vulnerable to state or other forms of violence uh, would actually be made more vulnerable, uh, particularly if they're engaged in, you know, politically or socially risky activity and, you know, need to use pseudonyms. So I'm thinking of political activists, I'm thinking of sex workers, you know, groups like this. And we also, it obviously creates this dynamic where online citizenship and offline citizenship are also linked in a way that's a bit, that's quite problematic. Only people who have particular state documents can access the internet or can access at least, you know, key infrastructures of participation within the internet, i.e. social media. Uh, And we know that a lot of citizens, you know, this means that non-citizens will could potentially have issues accessing the, the, the accessing social media. But it also means that a lot of citizens who don't have, you know, particular forms of ID uh, could also find themselves shut out from from social media. You know, th- there's a reason why we always resist voter ID laws, because they they impact the participation of the most vulnerable um, so, you know, where, where does this lead them? There's a risk really of deepening that, that digital divide. What we need is to actually think a bit more creatively about how we deal with the issue of abuse online. And that includes, you know, platform design, it includes platform moderation. It includes, you know, accountability and transparency on a lot of these platforms. You know, there's, and, and, you know, the, the role that platforms have on in shaping the conversations that are being had on it. And that's particularly, you know, what's really missing from this is the fact that these platforms are owned by huge, very powerful, but very unaccountable private companies. You know, companies like Google, companies like Microsoft, Apple, these aren't just private companies in the way that we've understood them. They are infrastructures. Uh, the scale is, is very different to anything we've dealt with before. And, you know, they are subject despite being infrastructural in that way, they are subject to very little public scrutiny. You know, as an academic who tries to study these platforms, I can tell you it's impossible to get any meaningful information on how they are run, even as an academic. And they aren't obliged to give you anything because they're not beholden to any kind of public uh, sphere law. Um, so, you know, I think that I understand that the, the impetus and the, the, the urgency that we need um, to address this issue, but I, I think that there has to be a better solution than, you know, requiring the uploading of ID, which brings with it a huge number of issues, particularly when it comes in the context of in the UK, you know, expanding authoritarianism within the state and expanding authoritarianism, particularly when it comes to, you know, political resistance as well. Mm. I mean, I, I have to say, I tend to agree with you there, Dahlia. The public, unfortunately, don't on this one. It's actually quite one of those issues where, actually, where there's there's quite a lot of consensus. People are really in favour of having some form of ID check. This is a YouGov poll. 
This was from Tuesday. They asked the public, when it comes to people's identity on social media, which of the below comes closest to what you think should happen? So one option was everyone should have to display their real identity on their profile. 37% of the public agreed with that. The sort of compromise one is everyone should have to disclose their real identity to the social network when signing up, but they could um, have anonymity on their profile. I suppose that would mean um, that if it was the case that someone was abusive, then the social media company could help the police track them down or whatever. The final one is everyone should be able to use social networks without having to display or disclose their real identity. Only 11% of the public backed that particular option. Interesting, actually, that anonymity, it is younger people who value it more than older people, which is also younger people who use social networks more. So that might be something skewing the results somewhat. I think, as, I mean, as well as what Dahlia said, my biggest issue with having identity either publicly or that you have to show the social media company would be that these are all international platforms, right? So it wouldn't be so simple as saying um, for people in Britain, you have to show your passport or your driver's license or whatever, because obviously one of the great things about social media is you can communicate with anyone anywhere in, in the world. And so whilst, yeah, as, as Dahlia says, there will be people who are, who are left out within the borders of Britain if these, these ID controls were, were introduced, um, undocumented migrants, for example, there will be people in you know entire countries uh, across the world who would be very, very uncomfortable going on social media and uploading a government document, even if you give it to Twitter. You say, oh, well, you give it to Twitter and Twitter refuses to give it to the government. What do we see over and over again? It's repressive governments pressure these tech giants to give them the data. And the tech giants, their big interest is their profit, their, their profit, their bottom line. And they, they cave in. So if I was a dissident in an authoritarian country, I would not like the idea of me having to show Twitter my government-approved document before I was able to tweet. I think it probably is a bad idea, although I do have a lot of respect for where it's coming from. Um, I suppose short of requiring ID, a less intrusive answer to online abuse would just be better moderation. And that definitely doesn't seem to be happening right now. There seems to be um, a lot of low-hanging fruit, actually, that the social media companies could be picking to try and reduce the amount of hate on their website. It was reported um, earlier this week, this was in the I newspaper, that multiple people were told by Instagram that posting monkey emojis under posts by black players did not breach the site's guidelines. The Center for Countering Digital Hate also found that of 105 accounts they identified targeting England players of racism, action was only taken against 5% of them, against 1 in 20. The CEO of that group told BBC Newsnight what he thinks is to blame for that inaction. The real problem has been that there is no incentive for them to do so, or rather there's no disincentive for them not taking action. And that's because for the main part, our regulators and legislators have failed to actually put into place a cohesive regulatory framework that would require them to take action to enforce their own terms and conditions, their community standards, as they call them, and make their platforms places where people can exist without facing abuse on a daily basis. That was Imran Ahmed explaining that the social media companies aren't sorting out the racism on their platform because no one is forcing them to. There's no cost to them for allowing racism to run rampant on their platform, so they're not going to do anything about it. It's a simple argument. It's also very persuasive. I also want to mention one more interesting insight from that report on Newsnight because it's become a big talking point over the last couple of days, um, which concerns where this online racist abuse is coming from. So Gareth Southgate in his press conference on Monday, he suggested that the majority of racist abuse targeting his players 
might well have come from abroad. He raised the figure of, of 70% of this kind of abuse generally coming from abroad. Um, that statement was backed up by Newsnight, who explained that of the 105 racist accounts we've we've just talked about, the available evidence suggested that 59 of those were operating from outside of the UK. And of those they could locate, either based on information on the account or the IP address or whatever, um, only five appeared to be from within the UK. Earlier, I'm sure you've heard you know, many people raise this fact that, or this, this idea um, that lots of these comments aren't coming from Britain, they're coming from abroad. How relevant do you think that would be if that were proven to be the case? If, if, if most of the racism targeting these players was from elsewhere, wasn't from within England? Well, I mean, it's not it's not a zero sum game, is it? And, you know, racism is a global condition. So I, I wouldn't be surprised that some of this abuse came from abroad. I would also say that if you have an account that is set up exclusively to troll people, you're probably using a VPN. You're probably not just like using your regular IP address um, or you're trying to conceal that. And I also think that you know, anyone who was on the internet on Sunday knows that more than 105 accounts were sending racist messages uh, to to the players. So I'm not I, I'm not entirely sure what people are getting at when they kind of talk about try and make this seem like a kind of foreign problem, uh, because we know that racism is a problem here. Um, so I'm not really sure what that kind of conversation is is getting at. But I think that, and this sort of links to the the question of you know. Anonym, anonymous online sort of presence and you know should we be in order to tackle online abuse should we uh have sort of basically crack down on anonymous trolls or anonymous bots and i think i think that we're getting a little bit diverted here you know obviously you know anonymous abuse online it's it's a huge issue it causes fear it makes what we're told is you know public open space which you know the internet isn't actually that but we're led to believe that it is that it makes it very difficult to access for a lot of people but i would say that you know the most dangerous form of racism and the most pervasive and powerful forms of racism are not coming from bots or twitter accounts with 30 followers they're coming from our tabloid media they're coming from you know the messages embedded in the policies of our government you know if you were to ask raheem sterling you know what makes him feel like he is under disproportionate racialized scrutiny i don't think he'd name twitter eggs i don't think that that would be sort of the first place he'd go i think he'd actually talk about you know the obsessive and demeaning headlines that he's been receiving in the tabloid media for years now, you know, the fact that his every move from like buying his mama house to having a tattoo on his leg is being obsessed over by the press and used to create an image of him as, you know, undeserving or sort of, you know, tacky or whatever they're trying to sort of promote about him, you know, or even the fact that when he scored the first goal against Germany, uh, the tabloid front pages were covered with basically every white person that attended that match, except for the actual goal scorer, you know, the first goal scorer. And so that complex that you have, particularly at the hands of, you know, the tabloid media, um, which even when it is targeted at, you know, an individual person of colour, it has, still has an impact on the culture and the way that people of colour feel in this country, you know, everyone read people you read when I read those headlines about Meghan Markle and I see that hyper obsession with her, I feel that, you know, it, it sends me a particular message. And it's that 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 
combination of both being, you know, invisible and overlooked, but also being hyper visible and really surveilled. You know, that's probably what, you know, Raheem Sterling would talk about or the other players on that on that pitch. Those forms of racism, they aren't anonymized, they aren't online, but they're pervasive and dangerous. And the fact that they're not anonymous doesn't mean that they're not being held, that they're being held accountable. So anonymity clearly isn't the key factor here because, you know, known, known purveyors of racism are also not being held um, accountable. And that's, that's not to belittle how distressing it can be to receive online abuse, but I think it can be a little bit too convenient for like the press and the government to sort of blame this all on you know social media trolls in their mum's basement um rather than you know looking kind of towards the more powerful institutions because those trolls learned this from somewhere um you know the fish rots from the head down and i don't think that we get anywhere by trying to pretend that that problem only exists in that one specific um realm because we have ample evidence that in very visible and, you know, institutions that should be really accountable and definitely are not anonymous that have, you know, names and faces, you know, and all of that, that the problem is still not being resolved. So I think that we shouldn't, there's a little bit of scapegoating happening here and evading of responsibility as much as I also understand that the, the conversation around, you know, online abuse and online anonymous abuse in particular is a really urgent one and is really distressing. This issue of online trolls isn't the most important issue when it comes to racism in this country, which is why when we talk about racism on this show, which we do a lot, we're in a very small minority of, of those moments talking about social media. We're, de we're generally talking about government policies, about structural racism. In, in terms of this, this issue of anonymous trolls and who is sending the posts, you know, one thing it does make me think of a bit is the Labour anti-Semitism crisis when people were saying, well, look, people are getting this abuse they feel like the Labour Party is, you know, flooded with anti-Semites. And then people point out, well, actually, lots of this trolling is coming from non-members. Lots of this trolling is from anonymous people. Some of it seems to be um, from people posing as 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 Labour members. So it is it is difficult to make a judgment about English football fans or even the English public based on a few people on social media. And, and I do think there is a danger of saying, oh, look, I've, I've sort of seen people on Twitter basically suggest, look, there was this this vision of, of progressive patriotism that Gareth Southgate was putting forward because of these um, emojis under Saka's account. That's dead now. That That's completely over. And I do think we should probably put social media abuse in context. Obviously, as you say, it's, it's incredibly significant for those it's targeting, but a few people can seem like a very big deal. And as I say, that, that's not to say racism isn't a big deal in this country. It's a massive deal in this country, but I do think we need to keep the social media development of it in proportion. Do you think that's fair, Dahlia? I mean, I think I would go, go back again to, you know, I don't think that you need the online evidence, the online trolls to all be, you know, even if every single one of them was not an authentic account, there is still ample evidence that, you know, and, you know, you and I have different opinions on the whole progressive patriotism thing. But I would argue that when you look at, you know, government policy, when you look at the, the messages and the systemic messaging that is done by the most powerful media companies and media outlets in our country, you don't actually even need the online stuff. 
at, to, to demonstrate evidence that there is a problem here that, you know, when everything that that even if you are representing England, you know, literally doing the most that you possibly can to integrate into English patriotism, you still, for, even if you enter the bloody English royal family, as Meghan Markle did, you are still subject to this particular surveillance and this particular racialized scrutiny and you know you just need to step one foot wrong and your entire the entire premise of your belonging is questioned in a way that it just isn't for other people so like to that I, I understand what you mean when you say you know we shouldn't let social media the social the sort of social media bots or whatever they're not all bots but you know what I mean the the, the small but vocal minority um on social media be the brush that we tar everyone with, but we don't need to. We can look at how the most powerful uh, institutions behave and we can see everything that we need to know um, about the issue at hand. The Tory government's decision to drop all legal requirements to wear masks is an unscientific and deeply irresponsible move. Not only will it enable the spread of COVID-19, but it will condemn those with weakened immune systems to their houses. We're hearing this over and over again. People who had got used to getting on public transport, going to shops, now saying, if everyone's taking off their masks, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's all been for very little benefit. Us wearing our mask, it wasn't a big deal to begin with. Why have, when the costs are so high, they decide to get rid of them? Why have they done that? We have some clues. Um, it seems that this is all because Boris Johnson wants to keep his backbenchers on side. I'm going to go to a story in the Financial Times by Sebastian Payne. He reported that a growing number of Tories argue that the need for masks has passed thanks to the vaccination programme. One backbencher, Miriam Cates, recently claimed incorrectly that there is no scientific consensus on masks. She won't be wearing one because freedom is very important. A senior government minister confesses that Johnson's hand was forced. Quote, colleagues have reached the end of their tether with restrictions. We couldn't have got continued restrictions through on Tory votes, and there's no way we could have passed with Labour. It would have been the end of Boris, so he indulged his libertarian side, they said. So we are now in a situation where people with suppressed immune systems are going to be scared, I mean, rightfully scared, to be honest, to get on tubes and go into shops when we've have, we have 43,000 people in the last 24 hours test positive for COVID-19. If they're not wearing masks, then if you have got a weakened immune system, which doesn't respond particularly strongly to vaccines, then you are going to be worried about leaving your house, right? And, and the reason this is happening is because Boris Johnson thought it would be too embarrassing to pass his latest round of COVID restrictions with Labour votes. So he's had to ignore the science, ignore the scientists, ignore the millions of people who are now being told they have to shield at home again, only because Boris Johnson wants to win these few extremists on his backbenches because he thinks it would be too embarrassing to get through this with Keir Starmer's vote. So we know that Keir Starmer would vote for it. He tends to do that, right? So this is purely about Boris Johnson's pride, and it's going to have some real, really terrible consequences, actually. Um, I've said these backbenches are extreme. Um, there's another anecdote in the piece in the FT, which I think really demonstrates this. So Payne writes... Like most workplaces, masks are currently required for shuffling around its corridors. That's the Houses of Commons or, or the Palace of Westminster. Staff manning the libraries and coffee shops are fully masked while the Libertarian Conservative MPs march around with their faces uncovered, bristling whenever officials remind them of the very guidelines that the government put into law. Now, Dahlia, I want your take on this. I mean, we've said it before, we'll say it again, we are governed by giant adult babies. 
And uh, I mean, that's very much demonstrated here. We have Tory MPs who are marching around the Palace of Westminster without masks. And this is before the 19th of July, right? This is when it's still um, a legal requirement to wear masks in, in, in closed indoor spaces. You've got members of staff who are going to be paid much much less than those MPs are saying, could you please put on a mask? And they're saying, no, I don't want to put on a mask. You know, how are we governed by these people? What the hell is going on? This isn't libertarianism, right? Like, liber like libertarianism in this context is such a joke because I didn't hear peep out of these MPs when, you know, the government considered putting undercover police into nightclubs in order to protect women, even though, you know, police have a record of assaulting women without ever being held accountable for it, or, you know, the policing and crime bill, which gives the police the right to intervene in protests that are considered a disturbance, i.e. most protests, or, you know, the prevent legislation, which flags people, particularly in educational institutions, uh, if they have, you know, a sustained critique of Brit British foreign policy. But they're up in arms when it comes to wearing a piece of cloth on your face for a short while in order to help reduce the transition of, I don't know, a plague. It's just, and you know, and, and as you said, to enable people who are, might be double vaccinated, but have compromised immune systems. And so uh, don't respond as well to vaccines or, you know, that 10% chance of still catching the virus and having bad symptoms, which is still there in the vaccines, particularly with the Delta variant on the rise and, you know, the dominant variant that we have now. That's a, that's a really, really scary prospect. Um, you know, that it's the pandemic is most certainly, it's not over for any of us, but it's most certainly not over for them. And something so simple would help increase the mobility and the freedom of movement of so many people. Um, but the fact that that, that minor concession isn't going to be made for the broader freedom of everyone, it's it's so pathetic and it's so miserly and it has nothing to do with genuine concern for freedom because these MPs are happily part of a very authoritarian government the one of the most authoritarian that we've seen in a really long time it has everything to do with being ideologically opposed to the idea of giving anything up yourself for the sake of anyone who is less vulnerable than you and it's that that narrow individualism that just doesn't work in a pandemic, which a pandemic that highlights how interdependent and how connected we all are, because you making the decision and saying, you know, I don't want to take on, you know, I don't want to wear a mask. It's not about you making the decision whether or not you want to take on personal risk. It's about working collaboratively to reduce the overall risk, risk for everyone and saying, you know, saying that it should be everyone's personal decision to take on, to, to take on or not to take on a risk by, by wearing a mask. It's like saying that it's someone's personal decision to get behind a wheel while drunk. Like it's not about whether your actions are a risk to yourself. It's about the fact that such an action is a grave risk to those around you. And we have reasonable restrictions in place, like an alcohol limit when you drive in light of that. And this is no different. And like I say, almost every show, you know, this really just, it comes down to a stigmatization that this, you know, this government and conservative governments of past, of past times, a stigmatization of collective responsibility or the idea of collective living. You know, this idea that 
anything that you do, if it's for someone else or if it's not to directly benefit you, then it's not worth doing. And that is almost the hallmark of neoliberal ideology. You know, there is no such thing as society. There is only individuals. It's that kind. It's nothing to do with freedom. It's to do with that particular kind of individualism that when it plays out on an on a societal level, just just manifests as the reproduction of horrible horrible power inequities no i mean I, I agree with everything you've said there as as actually nearly everyone in the country does and nearly all of the health scientists do this idea that it increases freedom to get rid of these masks at this point in time is is nonsense everyone knows it um including many leaders across Britain. We're going to take a little tour now. On Tuesday, um, Nicola Sturgeon confirmed that Scotland would be keeping the mask mandate in certain enclosed spaces. That's obviously contrary to what's going on in England. And we can take a look at her explaining her logic. Certain mitigations such as the mandatory wearing of face coverings will remain in place, not just now, but in all likelihood for some time to come. It is important to stress that measures like the continued wearing of face coverings are important not just to give added protection to the population as a whole, but also to give protection and assurance to those amongst us who are particularly vulnerable and who previously had to shield that shouldn't be an impressive thing to say because that should be the bare minimum that any political leader should be saying right now. But obviously it looks impressive compared to Boris Johnson. Um, Nicola Sturgeon did take the opportunity to make a dig at Boris Johnson and the UK government. It is my view that if government believes measures like this matter, and this government does, we should say so. We should do what is necessary to ensure compliance and we should be prepared to take any resulting flack from those who disagree we shouldn't lift important restrictions to make our lives easier and then expect the public to take responsibility for doing the right thing anyway. Oh, that is very, very well put. She's saying what Boris Johnson and the Tories are doing in Westminster, they're saying, oh, actually, you should continue following the restrictions, but now it's nothing to do with us. As we've just explained, that's because Boris Johnson doesn't want to have any more legal restrictions because of his extremist backbenchers. So he's essentially saying, uh, yeah, uh, we, we, we do think you should be careful, but it's all up to you now doesn't work in this situation because obviously everyone's health is dependent on everyone else's actions, not their own individual actions. And we can go to Wales now. They are also taking a different approach to the English free for all restrictions. They will be eased from this Saturday. They're moving to alert level one. Um, these things mean different things in, in all of the, the nations of the UK. So in this instance, that means for indoor gatherings, people are allowed to meet with up to five others and indoor events with 200 standing or 1000 people seated will be permitted and restrictions on outdoor gatherings will be scrapped. Um, so that's all from this Saturday. Speaking today, First Minister Mark Drakeford also announced that on August the 7th, most restrictions in Wales will be gone. That will be by moving to alert level zero. At that point, there will be no limits on the numbers of people who can gather in public or in private, and businesses will be allowed to open. Um, Drakeford, um, I suppose unlike our, our, our government in England, has suggested that this could all change if cases do not remain low. Like Nicola Sturgeon, he has also suggested that some restrictions such as masks will be in place beyond August and into the foreseeable future. Here in Wales, we will not abandon all those measures which have done so much to keep us all safe. At alert level zero, 
and from the 7th of August, therefore, people should continue to work from home wherever possible, where a return to the workplace is necessary, we will continue to ensure that COVID risk assessments will be a legal requirement for businesses, employers and event organisers. It will be a legal requirement that these assessments are drawn up with the involvement of employees and the mitigating measures set out in those risk assessments must be implemented. In Wales as well, shall we, at alert level zero, face coverings will continue to be a legal requirement on public transport, in health and care settings, and in all indoor public places, with the exception of education settings and hospitality. And the aim of the government will be gradually to ease these requirements as the risk of coronavirus decreases. Now, how refreshing was it to hear a political leader there putting the, the safety of workers first in his intervention? How, how rare is it for us to hear any of the Tory ministers in Westminster say what we are going to put an emphasis on is workplace safety in collaboration with employees? That's the kind of thing we never hear from that Tory government. I wish we did. Um, finally, we can take a look at some of the stances taken by England's Metro Mayor. Sadiq Khan this morning confirmed that mask wearing will remain compulsory on London's buses and tubes. I think uh, after Monday, we should continue making it uh, compulsory to wear a face mask on public transport, where often you can't keep your social distance. It adds an additional layer of protection, but also reassurance. The evidence we know from the government's own uh, scientific advisers, the evidence from the World Health Organization, is you wearing a face mask uh, makes it less likely that the virus can be passed on. It reduces uh, transmission in an indoor space where you can't keep your distance. But also the Center for Disease Control in the USA have now said, actually, on top of it being the most unselfish thing you can do, wearing a face mask may reduce the chances of you catching the virus. So for me, it's really important that we make sure public transport continues to be both safe, but also reassuring. That was clearly a very sensible position from Sadiq Khan. Interestingly, Grant Shapps, who is the Transport Secretary, this morning on Sky suggested that he endorses Sadiq Khan's move. This is, I suppose, another demonstration that the government's policy is all over the place, because just a week ago they were saying this has all be left down to personal responsibility. Now, when they said personal responsibility, I don't think many of us imagined by the personal responsibility they meant mayors taking responsibility. Right? I think we thought that was going to be individuals, individuals getting on the tube. It shouldn't have been, but that's, that's what they were putting forward. This as I say, a good move from Sadiq Khan. There are two big problems still, though. So the first is that workers on Transport for London are worried that it's going to be harder to um, enforce this now that the law isn't requiring masks indoors. If there are people who are saying, I don't want to wear the mask, is it going to get more difficult for transport workers to have that conversation with them? Now they can say, oh, no, but Freedom Days happened, etc., etc. The second um just as significant, in fact, is that TFL is organised in a much more centralised way, Transport for London organised in a much more centralised way than public transport across most of England. Um, so in most places, the mayor or the local authorities don't control the whole system. Andy Burnham, for his part, has suggested, well, I mean, he does, he only has control over trams, he's going to mandate masks 
on them. Um, and most of the metro mayors, or most of the, the Labour metro mayors at least, have suggested that they will be mandating masks on bus stops, for example. But if they don't control the bus routes, if they don't control the train lines, and there isn't that much they can do at this point in time. The national rail um, carriers, um, so the, the privatised rail companies, have suggested they won't be enforcing the wearing of masks. Um, it's worth just highlighting the numbers at the moment because this bonfire of COVID regulations is coming at a pretty odd moment. There were 40. 2,000 people testing positive for COVID-19 in the past 24 hours. The seven-day average is up 27% on the previous week. Um, deaths are also up 42%, which is fairly worrying, although they are still at a low level, 49 um, deaths reported in the last 24 hours. And patients admitted is probably the most worrying one, actually, on the dashboard at the moment, because the number of patients admitted to hospitals has gone up 53% in the past seven days. So that means that it's more than doubling every two weeks. We are having this bonfire of regulations while we are seeing COVID levels skyrocket. Do you think we are due a U-turn or do you think the government are going to ride this one out? I think it's really hard to say, actually, because, you know, I've said this a few shows ago. Uh, I think Sajid Javid is like really ideologically committed to this in a way that Matt Hancock was sort of a bit more all over the place. And obviously having someone who's all over the place in a pandemic is incredibly distressing and deathly, but it does mean that eventually he could be persuaded to do the right thing. Whereas I wonder if Sajid Javid is a bit more ideologically set on this. But the irony is that when you look at those graphs, and particularly when you look at the hospital admissions, and you look at that starting to creep up, and you look at the fact that the more that the virus is being transmitted, and the more that the virus is spreading, the more likely we are to see uh, new variants, mutations, and mutations that perhaps don't have as much of a strong that the mutations that are not as resist easily resisted by the vaccine, all of this means that dis despite the fact that freedom is being used as a cover um, in order to, well, not used as a cover, but used as a basically very weak justification for um, removing masks, this very policy is what's going, what's most likely to lead us into another really restrictive lockdown. Like having high compliance with masks on a consistent basis means that we're going to be much less likely to have to go into lockdowns that genuinely are massive restrictions on our freedom and also have really, really significant social and health impacts, as we know, whether it's mental health or it's the backlog of hospital, hospital stuff and etc. So ironically, what is being done in the name of freedom is actually going to present the biggest threat um, to our collective freedom. Um, and I think also, you know, as much as it's you know positive to see Sadiq Khan sort of coming out and saying you know whatever the government is saying we want to still mandate that that people should wear their masks on public transport i don't know how effective that's going to be when you know the national government has already the message from the national government is that this is over and that we don't need masks um you know i know that both of my parents who are working in healthcare contexts and are older they're dreading going to work after the 19th of July, because they're worried about having to have these individual conflicts and fights with patients to get them to wear masks in a room where they're being seen, rooms that are, might I add, generally not even ventilated. 
And, you know, in these contexts, it's such an abdication of responsibility. It's such an abdication of leadership by this government to leave this to, you know, individuals hashing it out with one another on the street. And especially in workplace contexts where, you know, the power dynamic means that a worker, it could be very difficult for the worker to tell, you know, a client or a customer to put a mask on, whether they're, you know, uh, working on the tube, whether they're an Uber driver, whether they're a hospitality worker. And it just goes to show the cowardice of Boris Johnson that, you know, in the face of his backbenchers, he's so scared of his backbenchers that he wants to leave this and outsource this responsibility to, you know, the transport and the healthcare worker to implement what he doesn't have the guts to do. A very good summary of where we are at. And I think that conflict point is actually really important. That's something I'm hearing over and over again from people, um, whether that's in their workplace or just going to the supermarket. You know, people are really worried that now there's going to be all of these arguments in the aisles about who is and who isn't wearing a face mask. And at the moment, you know, we've talked about people like Julie Hartley Brewer a lot, people who think that is an incredible infringement on their freedom to not wear a mask and who are willing to be incredibly obnoxious about it. Because of the overwhelming public consensus on this, they have been relatively, you know, silence marginalized in this in this process what boris johnson is doing now is he is putting them center stage the julia hartley brewers of the world are now going to be shouting at shop assistants you know i'm not going to say she is because i don't know she has done that that's the attitude you get on on social media which is i'm not going to wear a mask in this establishment and you are going to hear those arguments more and more and more after the 19th of july it's completely completely unnecessary dahlia gabriel it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you as always this wednesday evening Thank you for having me, Michael. It's been lovely. Well, thank you for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for watching and for your Super Chats tonight. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.